Well, I invite you once again to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Now, next week, we will return to Luke's Gospel. So, I invite you to go back and uh, read Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. That's where we're going to pick up. As we, this Sunday, conclude our Summer in the Psalms for this year. As you're turning to Psalm 110, uh, I, I want to say thank you. Uh, this past week was a really interesting week uh, with uh, Lee Blunker's funeral on Tuesday and then Thursday evening, uh, the opportunity to be with uh, Pastor Simon and Pastor Julius and to hear about a gospel partnership that uh, we pray for every week and a gospel partnership that has been with this particular congregation since the very beginning. Uh, I, I said it Thursday evening, and I think it bears repeating. Uh, much of how we understood the work of church planting and someone from a particular tribe wanting to reach their tribe with the gospel, we or I learned anyway from uh, Gigi Fan and from our friends in Kenya. And so... Uh, we, we could have named it Kenya Church PCA. That would have been even more confusing uh, than Grace Church. Uh, but that's the kind of influence and that's the kind of uh, sort of cross-pollination of the gospel that has gone on. And then uh, thank you uh, for the way in which many of you loved and cared for Lee Blumker's family. Uh, our folks showed up. They came here afterwards for a reception and were very warmly received. Uh, as I said Thursday night, Carrie is the straw that stirs the drink at Grace Church. And again, this past week, uh, she did marvelous work. So if you have not thanked her or hugged her neck, uh, please do so. Uh, she served you and the Lord Jesus well this past week uh, in, in ways that I don't, the ways that we will not fully appreciate uh, until we see Jesus. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, for this past week, we give you thanks. We bless you for the hope that is ours in the gospel. And Lord, uh, we trust and we know that there is coming a day in which we will see our sister Lee again. And we give you, uh, we, we bless you for that. We give you praise for that. 
Father, in the meantime, you call us to offer hospitality. You call us to weep with those who weep and to mourn with those who mourn. And so, Lord, I thank you for the folks in this congregation who faithfully did that this week. And Father, we do look forward to the day in which the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ are shattered and his people will be gathered to live under his rule and reign. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain texts in the Bible that if we removed them, the entire story of the sacred text would change dramatically. So imagine if you picked up your Bible and you didn't have Genesis chapters 1 to 3. Think how differently you would view the world. We would think about God's dealing with humanity in an entirely different light if we didn't have Genesis chapter 12, where God, out of nowhere, comes to Abraham and makes a covenant with him. Or, if we didn't have John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that tells us God's Son did not come into the world to judge the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Bob Reynolds' job, and indeed our entire judicial system, would be even more of a crapshoot if it was not for Exodus chapter 20, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments. Now, not just how we view the Bible, but how we view reality itself would be very different if we didn't have these particular texts. Well, our passage for this morning is another such text. As we come to the end of our summer in the Psalms, we find ourselves confronted with a text that is central to how Jesus himself understood his identity as the Messiah. The writers of the New Testament books of Hebrews and Revelation use Psalm 110 as an outline upon which to make their arguments. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that the entire book of Hebrews is an extended exposition of Psalm 110. This is a central text to understand the identity and the mission of God's Messiah. But it's also a central text when it comes to how we view reality, how we view and think about the world in which we live as sons and daughters of God. Psalm 110 helps us think through how our lives ought to be different as those who profess to follow Jesus Christ. Now, in the bulletin this morning and on the screen in front of you, you see a big idea for our time together. Here it is. We ought to live assured of the victory of God's warrior king slash priest. We ought to live assured of the victory of God's warrior king slash priest. Now, note, in the big idea, we say this is what we ought to do. There is a difference, I think, as we all know, between what one can do and what one ought to do. Oughtness is the thing that should be done. Can simply means I have the ability to do so. Oughtness is that which is the correct course of action, not merely an available course of action. 
I can eat a dozen donuts. Does that mean that's what I ought to do? I could eat an entire order of wings and drink an entire pitcher of beer. Does that mean that's what I ought to do? Well, this morning, we want to look at Psalm 110 in terms of how we ought to view the world. It tells us how we ought to understand the person and work and ministry of Jesus, but also how we ought to understand the world that is around us and how we are to live in it. First, three points. The first one is this. We have not just a king, but the king. Not just a king, but the king. Note right away in Psalm 110, we're told that this is a psalm of David. This is the third in a series of psalms of David. Psalm 108, we read, was a psalm of David. Psalm 109 is a psalm of David. And in both Psalm 108 and Psalm 109, we see that God's anointed king is in trouble. He's been betrayed. Things are not going as he would like them to go. And so the question is, is God the Father going to vindicate his anointed king? Now the answer we saw in both of those texts is yes. And here again is another psalm of David in which David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us the inside baseball edition of a conversation between God the Father, or Yahweh, and David's Lord. Now, the Scottish pastor and reformer John Knox put it this way, and said that David is writing to the master that he served. So it's God and a conversation between God the Father and David's master, whom David understood that he served. So, we have Israel's greatest king and a man after God's own heart speaking of a master who is somehow distinct from Yahweh and yet very much in cahoots with Yahweh. And David tells us exactly how it is that these two lords are working together. Now, the ESV helps us out with this. If you look at verse 1 in Psalm 110, you see it says the Lord and it's all caps, right? That's that's short, that's shorthand to let us know that they're speaking of Yahweh or God the Father, and the Lord says to my Lord. So we have two separate individuals, both who are known as Lord, and both of whom are master to David. Well, what is it that they're actually doing together? Look again at verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so let's, let's unpack that because like lots of things in the Psalms, there is some rich symbolism that we need to lay our hands on so we don't miss what's happening. This Lord who is working together with Yahweh, is sitting at Yahweh's right hand. 
Now, there are a couple of reasons why that is significant. First, the right hand is a place of honor. If you've traveled to the majority world, in other words, if you've traveled to places uh, that don't have all of the modern amenities that we do, read toilet paper, then you know there is a, there is a shaking hand and a greeting hand, and there is a hand that is not for shaking and not for greeting, you need it for another purpose. This was certainly true in Jesus' day. The right hand is a place of honor. The left hand is not. And so, for David's Lord to be seated at Yahweh's right hand means he is in a place of honor. In fact, he is in a place of singular honor. And the fact that he is seated means that his work is complete. It means that his task is finished. So whatever it is that Yahweh and David's Lord are up to, whatever it is that they're trying to accomplish, we need to understand that it's already been done. It's accomplished. It's finished. And so David's Lord is seated in the place of honor knowing that his task and his work is finished. It's complete. Well, what is this work? What is this task? What, why is it that this, this Lord is in such a position of honor? Well, he goes on to tell us. The Lord says to him, sit here until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, again, that is powerful and symbolic language. And we need to understand that this is a declaration from God himself. This is God the Father saying to David's Lord, to David's master, stay right here. I'm going to make all of your enemies your footstool. Now, that phrase, until I make your enemies your footstool, is a picture of unconditional surrender. There's no coming back from that. When you are bowed on the earth and your head is down and your enemy puts his boot on the back of your neck, and that's what's being pictured here, you have been utterly and completely defeated. Anyone who would oppose God's king, anyone who would oppose David's master, will be defeated thus declares God himself. Now, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as he's talking about all of the implications of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 25, he says, For he, Jesus, must reign until he, God the Father, has put all his enemies under his feet. The promise and the declaration that is made in Psalm 110, the Apostle Paul understands, has been fulfilled in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's understand, this is not just a question of God is the most powerful being in the universe, and so whatever God says goes. This is not just might makes right. 
If you've seen uh, any of the Avengers movies, you know uh, the bad guy in Avengers Endgame is a guy named Thanos who has all of these stones and he can simply snap his fingers and he has the ultimate power in the universe and everything comes undone. It's not because he's wonderful. It's not because he's worthy of any of this. It's simply because he has the power to do it. Well, that's not the God of the Bible. In fact, in verse 3, we're told something very interesting. That the people who belong to the Lord will offer themselves freely on the day of the power of David's master. And they will do so in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. In other words, God has for himself a people, the people of God. And they will offer themselves freely to serve this king. They will understand that to serve the Lord, to serve Yahweh, they must serve Yahweh's king. So I wonder, one of the questions that we uh, that we sometimes ask ourselves as we uh, think about uh, God's power over and against God's goodness. And we tend to contrast those things, right? We look at the world and we say, well, if God was all powerful, couldn't he stop that? And if God really does have all power, how is it then that he's good? So which is it? Is this a king who is all-powerful, as we see in verses 1 and 2? Or is this a king who is good, so good that God's people will offer themselves freely in order to serve and worship him? And the answer is yes. Is God good? Yes. Is God powerful? Absolutely. So the God who will bring about the destruction of his enemies is the same God who is so good that his people offer themselves freely in order to serve and worship him. He's not just a king. He is the king. Secondly, we see that he's one who's both priest and king. We see who he's one who's both priest and king. Psalm 110 gives us two declarations from the Lord himself. The first one is in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. The second one is in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Now understand, this is not just a declaration. Then. This is an oath. This is the Lord saying, as long as I am God, this is what is going to be. This king then is not merely a king, but he's also a priest. He's not going to be like the priest that Israel is accustomed to, however. Now, there was a really interesting thing. Uh, people sometimes wonder where in the U.S. did we get the idea of the separation of powers, right? There's a legislative branch. There's an executive branch. There's a judicial branch. Where does this whole idea that it's not necessarily good for anybody if one individual 
has all of that power, the power of all of those offices, only for themselves? And the answer is, it actually comes from the Bible. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, you had three very distinct offices. You had the office of prophet. And the task of the prophet was to declare the word of the Lord. The task of the prophet, both in, uh, in a confrontational sense, but then also in a sort of liturgical sense, was to keep God's word always before God's people. As we've been making our way through the book of Jeremiah in Sunday school, we've seen repeatedly this phrase, and the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. And so what does Jeremiah do? He goes and he stands before God's people. And in the book of Jeremiah, in a very confrontational sense, he declares to them the word of the Lord. Well, there are prophets, there are also priests. And the job of the priest was to offer the sacrifices, but then also to intercede. The priests were the ones who were serving, as it were, as intercessors between God and God's people. If you wanted to offer a sacrifice for your sin or a sacrifice for thanks, you could not merely go to the altar and do it yourself. It was not like an ATM. No, you had to go to the priest. You brought the offering to the priest. The priest did what was necessary to then intercede with God on your behalf. He offered praise and prayer to God on your behalf. The third office was the office of king. David in Psalm 110 is the king. David rules and reigns over God's people. But as the king, David cannot go to the temple, or he could not go, excuse me, uh, in David's lifetime to the tent of meeting, grab uh, a, a, an incense burner and offer incense to the Lord. David, in spite of the fact that he was king, could not serve in the tent of meeting as one of God's musicians. That was a role reserved for the priest. He couldn't intercede in that way. And yet we're told in verse 4 that this priest is a priest. This king is a priest, but he's after the order of Melchizedek. Now, uh, Melchizedek is not some sort of uh, supervillain who battles Superman. No, Melchizedek uh, was actually a king. And he was a king that, um, that interacted with Abraham. We read about him in Genesis chapter 14. So as Abraham's nephew Lot was living in Sodom, the king of Sodom and four other kings decided to revolt against four kings to whom they were paying tribute. And those four kings said, yeah, we're not having it. So in they come. They attack Sodom, among other cities, they conquer Sodom. They take all their people and all their loot and carry them away. And among those taken as spoils of war were Lot and his family. Abram hears about it and says, yeah, that's not going to happen on my watch. So he gathers together some folks, takes a really bad uh, group of banditos, chases these guys down, defeats them, comes back. And as he is coming back, a man named Melchizedek, 
who was the king of Salem, otherwise known as the king of peace, greets him. And we're told that not only was Melchizedek a king, but Moses tells us that he was also a priest of the Most High God. Here's a man who's both king and priest. And so what does Abraham do? Abraham pays him a tithe. Abraham gives him an offering. So we need to understand that this warrior, this king, is a priest, but not like the priest that Israel is used to. He is a priest who is both priest and king. That's why the picture that Psalm 110 is painting for us is so amazing. It's why there is so much comfort and assurance in the truth that Jesus sits at God's right hand. Friends, he's not just there because he's the king. He's not just there because he's conquered sin and death in the grave, though that's certainly true. He's there to intercede for you as your great high priest. How long will he do this? Two weeks? A month? Ten years? A hundred years? A millennia? No, look, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I, I one of the things I, I learn as the longer I live the Christian life is the greatest hindrance to my walk with Jesus is actually me. And the person that more often than not I'm most frustrated with, it's, it's not Amy. It's not our kids. It's not any of y'all. It's not our dog. No, the person that I'm most frustrated with in terms of, of uh, the experience of my walk with the Lord Jesus Christ is me. Well, I have a great high priest who sits at God's right hand. And he intercedes for me. And if you are his child, guess what? He's interceding for you too. I, uh, this past week, was reminded of lots of uh, stories related to Miss Lee and her life and was thinking about them and uh, many of you know she had a grandson die uh, 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 last year at some point in time. What's that? Yeah, 2021, here in the, in the recent future. Uh, and, and Lee, uh, at that point, I remember seeing her at the funeral, and she was grieving and heartbroken. And when I went to go see her the next week, um, she looked at me and she said, well, somebody lied to me. This, this was Lee, right? Just very blunt. Somebody lied to me, Pastor. And I'm like, well, Lee, what, 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 what are we talking about here? She said, you know, I always used to hear God won't give you more than you can handle. Okay, well, could you tell me where that's at in the Bible? She said, that's just it. I don't think it is. You're right. It's not. 
And she went on to talk about how the death of her grandson at that point was more than she could handle. Friends, there's a reason from time to time the Lord gives us more than we can handle. It's so that we will turn to him. We will look to him. We will understand and lay hold of the fact that our great high priest sits at God's right hand where he intercedes for us. And we understand that when our longings, when our groanings are too deep for words, not only does God the Son intercede with us for God the Father, but God the Spirit intercedes in groanings too deep for words. He is a priest who is also a king. Thirdly, we see that God's warrior king is vindicated. God's warrior king is vindicated. We know as far back as Psalm 2 that when God sends his king into the world, the other leaders of the world are not going to be very happy about this fact. In fact, the sending of God's king into the world is going to bring about rebellion and conflict. David knows this. And so in verses 5 to 7, we go from the fact that David's Lord sits at the Lord's right hand to now understanding that David's Lord has Yahweh himself at his right hand. And what's he going to do with it? Look at verse 5. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. So as I said earlier, Psalm 110 serves as basically sort of the outline for the book of Hebrews, but it also helps us understand the book of Revelation. And so if verse 4 focuses our attention on the New Testament book of Hebrews, then verses 5 and 6 help us turn the page to move from Hebrews to the book of Revelation. And when the text says that he will shatter kings and chiefs, we read something equally poetic and quite honestly equally terrifying in the book of Revelation. Keep your finger in Psalm 110, but turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 19. Now remember in Psalm 110, we've, we were told um, that that uh, in in verse in verse three, uh, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. And then again in verse five, on the day of his wrath. So we have this day of power, this day of wrath for David's master that is coming. Let's pick it up, Revelation chapter nineteen, verse eleven, because John's going to tell us about that day. And here it is. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name of which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh." Friends, what David gives us a hint of and a very poetic foretaste of, John shows us in Revelation chapter 19 exactly what the day of his power and the day of his wrath will look like. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. When I was transferring my ordination into the PCA, uh, I I was not going to be serving a church. I was going to be serving the missions organization uh, that I served when I first met Pastor Simon. And Uh, One of the questions, because I was what was known as laboring out of bounds, was not with a PCA-affiliated group or with a PCA church, but with an organization that was outside the boundaries of the PCA. And so the men who were uh, part of the ordination process were very concerned, knowing that we were working in Africa, that there was at least some acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God among the groups with whom we were working. If you if you know much about it, Africa is an interesting place theologically. There are some really, really solid people, and then there are some heretics. It's like the US, but it's it's even it's magnified even even greater. Uh, one of the most popular speakers and preachers in Africa is Benny Hinn. And Benny Hinn is nobody's idea of a faithful Orthodox Christian minister. Uh, He's a huckster and a a charlatan at best. And so they were concerned and they were asking me, they said, well, do do these people even understand the sovereignty of God? (laughs) I said, well, yeah, but probably not in the categories that we would want to use. We have very, uh, we have philosophical categories for these things. They tend to live it out. And he said, well, could you give me an example? Sure. I remember uh, one of the first trips that I went was sitting with Pastor Simon and uh, another pastor, a man named Wilfred, and they were telling me about a pastor up in Sombaru who was a man of great faith. So, well, what? okay, unpack that for me. What, is that, what does that mean? What's it mean to be a pastor of great faith in Kenya? And he said, well, he's working up in this area and um, th- there is the biggest village in his area has a very powerful witch doctor. 
And what makes it even worse is the witch doctor isn't a, the witch doctor is a she. And apparently, uh, you don't want to cross a witch doctor, but you really don't want to cross a she witch doctor. Uh, they they are nasty on top of being nasty. But this man decided that no, uh, his God reigned. Jesus Christ had won. These people needed to hear the gospel, and there was nothing the witch doctor could do to him to thwart him. And so he went. And he walked into the village, and the witch doctor was pronouncing curse after curse upon him and throwing things at him, and he stood and with great passion and great love declared to them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we like to talk about God's sovereignty, but they live it out. You see, they understood the reality of Psalm 110. He will execute judgment among the nations. God the Father is at his very right hand. There is no one or nothing who can thwart or defeat or frustrate God's warrior king. So why don't we live that out more often? Why do we feel the need to throw our hat in with so many lesser prophet kings to defeat our enemies? Why do we trust in either our finances or in politics or in science? and med- why, why do we trust all of these things? And I'm not, by the way, I'm not saying those things are not bad. But when our trust ultimately is in them and not in God's warrior king, our trust is in the wrong place. It is startling, isn't it, that in Psalm 110 he speaks of shattering kings and shattering chiefs because this warrior king was himself crushed, he was destroyed. He was betrayed, as we read about in Psalm 109. He suffered, was crucified, and died. But the Lord is at his right hand. And God the Father resurrected God the Son in glory. Friends, the victory has already been won. We ought to live assured of the victory of God's warrior, king, priest. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the victory that is ours through the Lord Jesus. There's that old gospel song. It's it's cheesy and horribly done, but it tells the truth. Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. Father, thank you for that victory. Thank you that Jesus sits at your right hand. And thank you that you are at his right hand. 
until all of his enemies are defeated. Father, may we, may we live in the certainty of the triumph and victory of your king, prophet, warrior. We ask this now in his name. Amen.